Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us to Oktoberfest? <laughs> I am Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. You have found the Dark Oak. have a campfire story for us today? You know that I do. <laughs> yeah, campfire stories have actually become some of my favorite part of Oktoberfest. They're so fun. Yeah. For those that are new to the Dark Oak and Oktoberfest, I mean, first of all, where you been? This is a place to be. Yeah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Finally. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for, for joining the fellow Shiver Seekers. Our campfire stories are a little add-on that we have just for the month of October in Oktoberfest. And they are, again, campfire stories, but they're little five, 10-minute stories you could tell at a campfire or when you're driving in the car, when you're hanging out with friends, um, when you're putting your sweet little babies to bed, tell them a little campfire story to give them spooky Halloween dreams, if you're that kind of parent. <laughs> and if you want them to end up in your bed later. Um, that too. So you really have you really have to weigh the cost. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, if you're not into campfire stories, just skip ahead, maybe five, ten minutes. And we have a full length. Uh, dark Oak Oktoberfest episode waiting for you. Um, but this is just a little something to get you in the spooky mood. So without further ado, here is today's campfire story. I'm ready. Now, typically I give you a title of a campfire story, but this one needs no introduction. So oh. I'm just going to get right to it. Okay, please do. At the end of a long, dark road is a long, dark path. At the end of the long, dark path is a lone, dark house. And the lone, dark house has a single, dark door. Behind the single, dark door is a long, dark hall. At the end of the long, dark hall are some tall, dark stairs. At the top of the tall, dark stairs is a long, dark balcony. At the end of the long, dark balcony is a big, dark room. In the big, dark room is a big, dark closet. In the big, dark closet is a big, dark door. Behind the big, dark door are some steep, dark stairs. At the top of the steep dark stairs is a dark dusty attic. In the dark dusty attic is a big dark chest. In the big dark chest is a small 
dark box. And in that small dark box is a pink jelly bean. <laughs> Stop and me. <laughs> this is my absolute favorite campfire story. First of all, it's super easy to remember. You could walk somebody into a deep, dark forest. You could walk somebody into the deep, dark amusement park. Whatever it is, something deep and dark. And whatever's in the chest is whatever your little heart desires. Oh. Pink jelly beans, yellow rubber duckies, green shoes, whatever it is. The kids love this one. My kids will love this. I will have to tell them tonight. They will love this story. <laughs> they will be on the edge of their seats and then... Yeah. Hysterically laughing. And then hysterically laughing. <laughs> yeah, the last time I told this was actually around a campfire. We were doing a little camp out with some friends. Um, we had like, you know, hot dogs on sticks yeah. and all that kind of thing. And one of the little girls, I mean, she she was already, you know, a little bit scared of the spooky stuff. My poor children have been conditioned. <laughs> but Future was, true crime enthusiasts. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, how could they not be right. at this point? Poor things. Um, but she was a little new to this uh, genre, if you will. And I remember looking over her at her at the campfire and she had a little blanket around her and her blanket was pulled up. Like all I could see was like the top of her head and her little eyeballs. She was so worried. So cute. And then, of course, as soon as I said pink jelly bean, I mean, <laughs> she jumped up and was like, I was not scared. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Oh, my gosh. That's so cute. Yeah. So one of my absolute favorites. I really hope you share this with someone. And again, just kind of get into character a little bit. And uh yeah, that's love a it. fun one. Yeah, my kids will love that. Thanks for bringing that. Unfortunately, my story today doesn't have a pink jelly bean at the end. Oh, I know. Wah, wah. I know. It's a lot less fun. My story today is about Yoshihiro Hattori. Okay. Uh, Yoshihiro went by Yoshi. He was born in Nagoya, Aichi, Prefecture, Japan. Okay, somebody's been practicing their Japanese because that sounded amazing. Thank you, Google <laughs> Pronunciate. <laughs> you know what? You got to use the tools at your That's disposal. Right. That's right. We do the work here at the Dark Oak. <laughs> oh, do the work. We, you know what? We do it for our Shiver Seeker listeners. That's right. We, we do for the work. you. With us is all for you. <laughs> so Yoshi was the middle child of three children. His father was Masiachi Hatori. An engineer, and his mother is Mieko Hatori. Oh my gosh, I love her little name. I know. Well, her whole personality, you will learn, is just she's so sweet and so loving and so kind, which makes sense when you get to know Yoshi a little bit because he was so sweet and wonderful, and they, they really seem like a, a beautiful family. Sweet. Yes. Uh, when Yoshi was 16 years old, he submitted an entrance application into a worldwide student exchange program. And in this paper, you know, he had to write a little bit about himself, why he wanted to join this program. And he wrote, wherever I go, I wish I could make the country a second home country. I can make Japanese cooking like tempura cutlet for host families and introduce the living way of Japanese. Okay. A 16-year-old boy wrote this? Isn't that sweet? How lovely. I, and I love all parts of it. I love how he's so comfortable saying, 
I'm willing to go live and learn about another country and integrate myself there. But he also is so proud of being Japanese and his way of life and his culture and customs. And he wants to share that with other people. It's just wonderful. I love that. I thought that was very cool and very telling about him. The fact that he too wanted to bring his way of life and show how he lived as well. A lot of confidence and just Yes. Self-assurance. Which says so much about, again, the way he was raised and as parents and to, you know, be showing those attributes. At 16 years old, a 16-year-old boy. Uh, yeah. Uh, definitely a standout, for yes, sure. for sure. So Yoshi was accepted. Of and- course he was. I would take <laughs> him in a heartbeat. Was. Yes, me too. Especially if he'll make some, uh, do some cook some Japanese us. cutlets. I know, right? That's, I've never had a Japanese cutlet, but I'm I'm here for it. It sounds really good. Yes. Uh, so at first, you know, when he'd submitted this application, it was kind of more of a we'll wait and see kind of thing. But he was a little hesitant to leave Japan because he was very involved with his rugby team. Oh, I didn't realize rugby was such a thing in Japan. I didn't either. And But, it, you know, for him, it was a big deal. But as his family said that as soon as he got the word. That, yes, you've been accepted. Suddenly, he was ready to go. He He was was like, forget that rugby. (laughs) I'm going to America. Yeah, I'm going to America. (laughs) Yes. So in the summer of 1992, Yoshi left Japan with plans to stay in the United States for one year. Which, gosh, that seems like a long time. Did you ever have any experience with exchange students growing up or in school? Yeah. So when um, I was a teenager, my family took in a Russian exchange student. Okay. Um, now, our program sounds a little bit different. It was through our church. And these were younger kids. So I say like 10, 11, 12, something like that. And they stayed for a much shorter time, mm-hmm. I assume, because of their ages. So sure. I think she was with us maybe two months, um, which I don't know. Even now, I mean... As a teenager, again, when she stayed with us, I didn't think much of it. But Mm -hmm. now as an adult, I'm looking back on both. I mean, how brave she was. Um, I think she was 11 as an 11 year old to go to a total (laughs) foreign country. Wow. Um, But then also as her parent, I I don't know, I've got to have a lot of faith in this group that she's going with to send my young kid to a foreign country for even two months oh yes Um, for sure but it wound up being a good experience for everybody so it worked out but i imagine even my 16 year old to send them for years who would be i would have to breathe a little deeply but it sounded like she must have had well his mother and father Mm -hmm. must have had a lot of confidence in him his decision making his self-confidence and must have believed in I don't want to call it his mission, but how he said he really wants to share his culture and learn other cultures. They must have really believed a lot in him. Yeah. In order to let him go. It would be very scary to let your child do this or to even do this. But at the same time, like what an experience. So in the summer of 1992, Yoshi left Japan and arrived in Dallas where he was met by his host family, his host parents, Dr. Holly Haymaker, who was a family physician and female reproductive rights activist. Whoa. I know, right? Like, that's an accomplished woman. Whoa. And then her husband, Dick Haymaker, was a theoretical physicist, which I don't even know what that is, but it sounds smart. Is there anybody not amazing in this story? They are all pretty amazing. Yeah. Actually. Wow. Yeah, they are. Uh, now, this family had hosted exchange students before. But they said there was something really special about Yoshi. He was described as being fun 
an extrovert, a free spirit. All of the kids at McKinley High School really loved him. And they described him as such an extraordinary guy. They said he was life and that he moved through space like a dancer. I I don't even know how to respond to that because that's so lovely and sweet, isn't it? Wow. Isn't it so sweet? He sounds like a real standout. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I mean, life moving through space like a dancer. I wish someone would describe me like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't happened yet, but there's still time. Your time's coming. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I mentioned Yoshi had been a rugby player in Japan, but once he got settled in with his host family in Baton Rouge, so that's where they actually lived. He had flown into Dallas, but then transported to Baton Rouge. There he signed up to join a jazz dance class where he was very popular. Everybody loved him, of course. And to get to class, Holly got him his own bike and helmet and all of the things that he would need to be able to cycle to class. But even doing this required him to really overcome some things. First of all, a language barrier because English is a second language. Right, right. But then to even get to class, he had to follow Holly's hand-drawn maps that she made for him to show him how to get back and forth. I mean, how lovely is she as well that, you know, didn't want to deprive him of anything and she went out of her way to help him with this? It's really nice. Isn't that cute? It's I just really nice. And see her drawing maps for him and him following him. That's very nice. Yeah. You know, they sound like such a nice family. Yeah. On top of just being really cool people, just the two of them, they also had a son named Webb who was also 16, just like Yoshi. And fortunately, Webb and Yoshi became fast friends. They uh, immediately hit it off. Webb said that Yoshi had an enormous appetite for life and experience and could make friends wherever he went. Okay, what is so adorable about teenage boy, like, friends, groups of teenage boys, like, hanging together, getting each other's backs? I just, I find it so endearing. Sometimes I feel like there's this masculine idea of men can't have relationships with other men, like close relationships where they're bonded and they hang out. It's kind of poked fun at sometimes. And it's just heartwarming to me when I do see men that are open to being vulnerable with each other and talking about just life struggles. And so when I see teenage boys doing that too, you know, just hanging out, just being real with each other. I just, I feel like it's so refreshing. I love that. I I totally agree with you. I think there's something so cute about uh, teenage boys hanging out like that. My 19 year old son just went to go see the Barbie movie with like five of his guy friends. So sweet. Yeah, yeah, Right. And when he told me he was going, I just assumed he was going with like girlfriends or a a mixed group. And he was like, no, I'm going with the guys. And I just thought that was so adorable that six 19 year old guys, 19, 20 year old guys are all going to see the Barbie movie wearing pink (laughs) and not thinking twice about not having a girl in the group. They're like, no, we've got the confidence. We're rocking this. We've got each other. We're going to go see Barbie. I love it. And then he came home and was like, that movie was so awesome. It was so good. (laughs) Best movie I've seen in so long. And he was being genuine. I love it. I love a secure teenage boy. Exactly. And you're like, hello, mother-son date, please. I know, right? (laughs) I know you'll have to see it again, but take me next time. Please. Yeah, I love that Webb and Yoshi had this great relationship. And the two boys would do all kinds of fun things together. They went to a blues festival. They met up with other exchange students and like, 
you know, started talking about each other's experiences. They even met another Japanese exchange student and were able to like make contact with him and make plans. What with a him. cool community. I the know, whole right? community. It really does. It makes me wish that I had uh, had a foreign exchange student in my life when I was a, a kid or maybe I should host one now. I don't know. All right. Cynthia is currently taking applicants. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. And if you can uh, cook really delicious food, <laughs> that is an added bonus. One of the things that these two guys were invited to do was attend a Halloween party. And this party was going to be just northeast of Baton Rouge in the city of Central, Central Louisiana. Okay. So on Saturday, October 17th, Dick and Holly decided to make the best of the fact that their kids were going out. And they decided to go see a movie playing in the theater. You may have heard of it. The Last of the Mohicans. Whoa. (laughs) Core memories. Take you back in time, right? (laughs) That's Brad Pitt, right? Yeah. Yeah. A young, a really hot Brad Pitt. Hot Brad Pitt. <laughs> Couldn't tell you about the movie, but I remember Brad Pitt. <laughs> yep, pretty sure. Pretty sure that's what I remember too. Yeah. <laughs> so while they were going to see this movie, Yoshi and Webb went to this Wait, party. It's not Kevin Costner, is it? No, that's uh, Dances with Wolves. Okay, that I, I was intermingling the two. Oh, oh yeah, you're right, Brad Pitt. Dances Let's stick with, with that. Yeah, Let's Brad stick with Pitt. That one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, one of the things Yoshi had really enjoyed doing in his time here in Baton Rouge was watching movies. And he'd been watching a lot of John Travolta movies. So he obviously decided to dress as John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever. Adorable. Isn't that so cute? (laughs) Webb decided he was going to take advantage of an old neck brace that he had from a previous injury. And he was going to go dressed as an accident victim. So he wore the neck brace and just some some bandages. Use what you got, Webb. Use what you got. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So the boys leave to go to this party. They get to the street where they thought they were supposed to be. And there's a house. Now, they didn't know this part of town very well. But the house had Halloween decorations. It had multiple cars in the driveway. And the address was 10311. The address that they actually were looking for was 10131. So they had a couple numbers inverted. But they didn't realize that. And so given the fact that the house was decorated, there were several cars. They thought they were in the right place. So they walk up to the door. It's an honest mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. They walk up to the door and they knock. But at first, nobody answers. They wait a minute or so. And as they're standing there, all of a sudden, a woman opens the door, looks out at them, looks at them, makes eye contact, and then slams the door. Okay. So that's weird. Uh, Yeah. All right. So they're confused and they start kind of walking away. And Webb starts walking down the block. At this point, he's starting to question, okay, maybe we're not in the right place. That was not the reaction I was expecting. Yeah. And maybe it didn't look like there was a party behind her. So as they're trying to figure all of this out, suddenly the front door opens again. And this time behind the door is 30-year-old supermarket butcher Rodney Pierce. And he's pointing a 44 Magnum revolver directly at Yoshi. Good night. Right. Now, all of this is happening so fast. And I can only assume that everyone here in this scenario is a little confused. You know, Yoshi's still near the door. Webb started kind of walking away. 
Rodney's pointing a gun. Again, it's a Halloween party and they are expecting people to be in costume. So I don't know if it would have even registered that somebody pointing a gun is an immediate threat in that in that moment. Like, could you have maybe thought, this is somebody in costume. This is somebody opening the door for a Halloween party. As a jo- I don't know. You, there's no, no way of knowing what's fair. going through their mind. That's but fair. Yeah. This isn't just a random, I'm knocking on somebody's door. Right. Webb says that in this moment, when Rodney's there pointing a gun at him, Yoshi was just so excited. And he started singing, we're here for the party. We're here for the party. Like, literally singing, we're here for the party. And, like, kind of dancing around boisterously. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, he's excited. He yeah. thinks he's there for a party. In response to this, Rodney shouted, freeze. But that's not a command that Yoshi was familiar with. So according to Rodney, Yoshi kept moving towards him. So in response, Rodney pulled the trigger, firing once, hitting Yoshi in the chest, and then slammed the door. I want to say curse words right now. It's unbelievable to me. Wow. It's unbelievable to me that... This I mean, happened. it's a 16-year-old kid. A 16-year-old kid. Dressed in... Dressed as John Travolta. Right. Saying, I'm here for the party. Right. And I'm sorry, even saying the word freeze, I would type, even as a native English speaker, I wouldn't even understand, like, what are you talking about? Right. Freeze. And again... I'm here in a residential street, and again, I think I'm here for a Halloween party. Right. I, I mean, again, and as you were saying... Everybody else is in costume, too. So how do you know this guy's not just playing a part? That's kind of what I even think if, I would have thought. Yeah. Even if Yoshi had understood, he would have just been like, ha ha, I'm here. I'm going to dance my way in. Like, I don't think that's that's not out of the realm of possibilities. I'm with you. That a kid could do. I'm with you. Unbelievable. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. And he just closes the door. Shoots him, closes the door, which... Why didn't you just close the door? Why open the door in the first place? If you feel like you're being threatened. Yeah. Which we'll find out more later. That's what he felt was happening. He felt like he was being threatened. I don't know about that. This does not sound threatening. No. And again, it's Halloween. Don't you expect people at your door? Well, it's not Halloween night. It's October 17th. So it's a couple weeks before Halloween. But when you see one person wearing a neck brace and bloody bandages and somebody else dressed as John Travolta saying, we're here for the party. We're here for the party. And they're 16. I mean, you wouldn't mistake Yoshi for like a 45-year-old man. I mean, I don't know that I would look at him and be like, oh, he's absolutely 16 years old. But he, you know what I mean? Like, he's not a threatening. He's He's a kid. Yeah. No, girl. Girl, I'm telling you, this case is awful. awful. Okay. Tell me this awful man's name again. Rodney Pierce. Okay. Rodney friggin' Pierce. Yes. Yeah. I'm hot right now. Oh, girl. I'm I'm actually hot. No, it's infuriating. Like my blood is boiling. It's infuriating. The fact that he could just do this. You'll get... Oh, it doesn't okay. get better. Okay. All right. Well, while this is happening across town, the haymakers are leaving the movie theater. And... This is really like sobering and ironic because, you know, they're leaving this movie and like my heart is breaking for every single person in this story right now. Awful. Already breaking for, you know, clearly Yoshi, his parents, for Webb, for his host family. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ripple effect that is about to happen in this story. Wow. So many people were affected. Lifelong. By this choice that Rodney Pierce made. Yep. Yep. 
Holly as they were walking out of this movie. Because, you know, if you haven't seen The Last of the Mohicans, it's based on wartime. Right. And she said to Dick as they were leaving, isn't it great that this country isn't as violent as that anymore? (sighs) Isn't that chilling? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So literally as they're walking away from the theater, Holly's pager went off. I mean, this is like seconds before her life is about to get shaken. Her whole life. Yes. Her pager goes off. If you're not familiar with pagers, probably most everyone is, but this is before cell phones. So if you needed to reach someone, especially a doctor, remember she's a doctor, right? you would call this number, which goes to their pager, and then you would leave your number that you wanted them to call you back on. So that's what happened. She calls the number back. She doesn't recognize it. She calls it back, and it's the police. And the officer on the other end of the line told her that her son Webb was fine, but the other boy... And he struggles to pronounce his name. Was not. So she immediately says, okay, we'll meet you at the hospital. And the officer tells her that won't be necessary. (gasps) It's, I mean, chills. Chills on my whole body. I had a really hard time with this case, Stephanie, researching this case. Like, this case really hurt my heart. Um, Dick and Holly learned in that phone call that after he was shot, Yoshi began bleeding out right there on the sidewalk while Webb ran to the house next door to try to get help after he got somebody to call, you know, the police or call for, you know, emergency responders. He then came back to Yoshi and applied pressure to the bullet wound as best as he could. And he stayed there until he was relieved by emergency responders. But despite all of this, despite all their measures and everything that they did, Yoshi died in the ambulance 30 minutes after he was shot. Devastation. It's awful. So Dick and Holly race to the police station. And once they're there, they find their 16-year-old son, Webb, sitting by himself in a great big cold room. And he's unaware of what happened to his friend from the moment that the ambulance drove away. He doesn't know what happened. Right. So his parents had to tell him that Yoshi had died. And Dick said the first words out of his mouth upon hearing that his friend had been killed was his poor mother. Ugh. So that tells you right there that I'm like, tearing right now. I know. I'm literally tearing. I cried a lot. Yeah. During the research of this. I mean, we have, you know, I have a, a teenage son. So um, I think it says a lot that even the 16 year old friend knew how badly this was going to affect the mother. I think, you know, it was very obvious to him that this was a very close family. Well, and again, it speaks to what a treasure Yoshi was, mm-hmm. you know, that he just knew that loss was going to be felt so deeply. Yoshi's parents learned the news of what had happened to their son from a worker with the exchange program. When she heard the news of her son, Mieko screamed, fell to the floor, and then retreated to her son's childhood bedroom to cry. Oh, heartbreaking. (sighs) Two days after Yoshi was killed, the Hattori's flew to New Orleans. Holly remembers being terrified to meet his family. Yes, I'm sure, even though this was not 
in any way her fault. She must have felt that responsibility. You have someone else's child in your home and you feel that incredible responsibility to keep them safe. And she did. I mean, think about the little maps that she drew and, you know, making sure that he was independent, but also was being watched over, was getting, uh, you know, proper instruction, was getting immersed in his new home. And she must have felt an incredible responsibility. And to know that you had let down a mother, a wonderful mother. <laughs> we're, we're both cheering. <laughs> Guys, we are moms first and foremost. That's right. <laughs> so these really do affect us. We're real people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not automatons. Okay, we're going to have to cut this part out. Let's okay. just cry and then get it over okay. with. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, um, yeah, my my heart really breaks for for Holly and how she must have felt, and I understand her feeling that way. Oh, me too. I I don't know how she had the bravery to do it. I guess she didn't have a choice, but she said that you know what you just she echoed what you said. She felt like because it was her job to take care of their son, and then this happened on her watch. You know, she was so worried of what Yoshi's parents might Absolutely. what their reaction might be. Absolutely. But we're going to cry more. Oh, boy. The first words that Yoshi's mom said to Holly were, how is Webb? (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a moment and cry real quick. (laughs) Because, again, what a wonderful network and community of, of loving people. Yes. Yes. And you will see that what they do from this point on, they genuinely take this tragedy and do with it what they believe is the right thing. Okay. Clearly, Yoshi's shooting became a global news story overnight. I mean, it was just shocking. And it shocked people around the world. It shocked people in Japan, where he lived, and where handguns are banned. Right, right. Gosh, I mean, so I imagine... Oh, for his parents, this is, I mean, this is a tragedy they never even envisioned happening. Right. Because it's not part of their reality. Right. And they send him to this other country for new experiences. And then something like this happens. I mean, oh, how, you this is just awful all the way around. There's yeah. nobody getting out of this not feeling just awful. What if? Right. Should I have? Yeah. All the what ifs. Just, yeah. Really. Ugh, it's just icky. It makes me feel very icky. putting myself in in this mindset it's almost impossible for me to put the myself in their shoes Mm -hmm. without feeling it so greatly yes but these were really good people and they immediately decided that they were going to make something positive out of this tragedy they acknowledged that they could never get the life of their son back but they could use it for positive change and so they decided to launch a campaign in japan calling for an end to easy access to firearms in the U.S. Oh, okay. And at first, and I is that know, a thing? I okay. So I'm not, I'm not crazy because I was like, I didn't know you could. Now, when I say launch a campaign, what they were doing is they created a petition and started gathering signatures. Okay, but they got signatures from their fellow Japanese community. And then use that to try to, you know, then brought that over to the U.S. 
Okay, to start try to start a to movement try here. to start a movement here. Okay, but I was the same way. I was like, I didn't know that. Like, I wouldn't have even have thought that would have been a thing. Me neither. But they started with what they could. They right? started with what they, they could, started with they what. Had. Yeah, they started with what they knew. Mm-hmm. They started with what they had, and they did something. They did. In fact, they so talk about doing something. They began this petition while they were in the car driving away from Yoshi's funeral. Wow. And that was his funeral here, the service that he had here right. in America. Because by the time they'd flown back to Japan, they it, the petition had been written and they were literally ready to start collecting signatures. Wow. Now, back in Baton Rouge, there was Rodney Pierce that had to be dealt with. And he had initially been released without charges because it appeared that the assumption was he was within his rights to shoot a trespasser. but. A lot of people didn't like this, and rightly so, right? Yeah, it's just not, it just doesn't sit well with me. We are in the South. We, I do believe in personal protection, but this just doesn't seem to fit that mold. No, and I don't have an exact time, but we know it's not like in the middle of the night. Right. It's, you know, probably seven, eight, sometime around that. It's not three o'clock in the morning. And again, they have Halloween decorations up. They know it's October. Right. They're not. So we tried the door and the door was open. So we walked in the house. There wasn't. Well, we were peering through the windows to look and see. There wasn't stuff that would actually make you feel unsafe. Right. Or we were trying to enter through the back door or, yeah, or banging on the door. Literally, they rang a doorbell or knocked on a door. Right. And then when someone opened it, they said, we're here for the party and started walking towards this person. I mean, you can't ring a doorbell anymore. I mean, it's just something is not melding. Like something is not meshing for me. How you could feel threatened in that situation. Well, a lot of people agree with you, Stephanie. And after complaints from Louisiana's governor and Japan's consul in New Orleans, Rodney was charged with manslaughter. Yeah. So his case went to trial. And during this trial, his defense lawyers worked very hard to establish his actions as self-defense. Right. They said that Pierce was not a killer. Instead, he was one of your neighbors and he was simply reacting to Yoshi's extremely unusual way of moving. So him like, you know, dancing around, just being excited for a party was enough, I guess, to set this guy on edge. Like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Stay in your little bubble, Rodney, because <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's enough to freak you out. Exactly. I feel like something else was going on there. Right. Well, the defense continued to describe Yoshi as an out-of-control, hyperactive Japanese exchange student who thought his job was to scare people. Um, no. No. Again, that doesn't ring true. Does that sound like how anybody else has described him? No. No. So remember the woman? Who first opened the door and then slammed it closed? Yeah, that we assume was the wife. It was. It was Rodney's wife, Bonnie. And she told the court that Yoshi had scared her when she opened the door and saw him there. And so she ordered her husband to go get the gun. And that's why Rodney showed up, you know, at the door, gun literally ready to go. Wow. Bonnie, you just close the door and you just don't open it again. Call the police. Like, again. Call the police. So many steps I feel were missed here. Again, considering the time of day, 
considering the assailants had no weapons, considering they were acting like normal citizens. They weren't creeping. They weren't acting like uh, home intruders. No, I, I, I mean, no. I'm I, back to being hot again. I know. I'm back to being hot. <laughs> I believe you can, of course, defend yourself, but you can't just shoot somebody because they knocked on your door. No. This doesn't seem like a circumstance in which you would need to defend yourself. No, there was no threat. And Holly reiterates that Yoshi was the complete opposite of menacing in appearance or behavior. He was the type of person who literally made friends in this country that he didn't even live in just by looking at them. They said he could literally just like look at you and like smile and and make friends, you know. So for her to find him menacing, I don't know. Yeah, doesn't it doesn't seem to mesh. Yes. Holly believes, unfortunately, that racism played a role in Rodney's decision to open fire. Well, the fact that they made such a big deal in his defense about this being an exchange student, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I don't like that they brought that into it either. Um, It does sound definitely like a race issue. It it feels that way to me, too. Holly said that she believes that if she'd had a Norwegian exchange student, that Norwegian student probably wouldn't have been shot. In the court file, both Rodney and his wife, Bonnie, refer to Yoshi as Oriental, which, as we know, is now considered a very archaic term, not something we would use nowadays. Right, right. Um, But interestingly, they did not use any identifying terms about Webb's race. Mm. I mean, it does it does seem to lean towards Holly's theory of race uh, coming into play. It feels that way to me. Well, you're not going to believe this. But in May 1993, Ronnie Pierce was acquitted after a jury deliberation of only three hours. I feel like my heart is broken all over again. It's awful. Now, listen to this. The Hattori family did not let this discourage them from their gun control activism. And they even went so far as to say that they thought that Rodney was also one of the victims with his life forever changed because of the accessibility of guns. Okay. All right. Yeah, I want to hear more about what them. What a forgiving attitude, right? Like literally looking at their son's killer as a victim. I thought that was beautiful. I thought what a beautiful way, instead of hating this man and wishing all these horrible things on him, looking at him as a victim of his own circumstances. Wow. It, again, says something about these people. Yeah. After this ruling, Yoshi's story was once again all over Japan's headlines and news broadcast, and it stayed up there for weeks. And this really helped with the Hattori's petition, and it kept growing until eventually 1.7 million Japanese signed it. It really shows how much respect this family was was able to procure. That's yeah. incredible. Right. Incredible. Now, the Haymaker family decided they weren't going to let the Hattori family do this on their own. So they were going to gather signatures here in the U.S. And I imagine in their situation, it could have easily been Webb. I mean, obviously, we have the race issue, which may have played into it. But he could have taken out both of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I'm sure she feels compelled to do something to protect her son as well. Sure. Dick Haymaker spent the better part of a year focusing on getting signatures for this petition And Holly reiterated that this was before email. It was before, you know, web. It was before Facebook. And it all had to be done by telephone and snail mail. 
So much easier today, but they really worked hard. He actually dedicated pretty much the rest of his life to gun control activism. And he said the beginning was just doing the petition drive and just throwing my life at that. And then I threw my life at Washington. And then I threw my life at trying to get an appointment with the president. And in the end, I did. Wow. He was Mm -hmm. not taking no for an answer. They were not. So both the Hattori and the Haymaker families were in Washington in November 1993 as part of their campaign. While they were there, Mieko was able to get a note to a friend of the family who just so happened to be an old roommate of President Bill Clinton's. Whoa. I know, right? It's good to know people. Yeah. Who you know. Yeah. (laughs) So President Clinton agreed to meet with the two families in the Oval Office. And they later said that they felt very welcomed and understood by President Clinton. However, the Hattori's and the Haymakers agreed that despite his private support, there was very little the president could actually do to help practically. At the same time, proposed gun control measures had gotten a pretty big boost from their campaign. And then the 30th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination also occurred right at the same time which also helped to raise awareness of the issue. Congress passed the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which mandated background checks on gun buyers and a five-day waiting period on all purchases. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize these two were connected. Yes, and President Clinton signed it into law two weeks after meeting the Hattori's and the Haymakers. Whoa. Okay. I didn't realize there was a period. There were no waiting periods at all. Yeah. Wow. In some states. Wow. Mm. On top of this, U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Walter Mandal, traveled to Nagoya to meet the Hattori's in December 1993, and he gave them a copy of the law saying that they had a very definite impact on passage of the Brady Bill. Yes, it had been first introduced in 1991, but nobody really paid attention to it. It was not brought to a vote until after Yoshi was killed. Wow. Wow. So the following summer in September 1994, Congress passed the Federal Assault Weapons Ban, which was a 10-year moratorium on manufacturing certain semi-automatic weapons for civilian use. And on the same day the ban was signed, the Hattori's and the Haymakers convened in a Baton Rouge courtroom for the civil trial of Yoshi's killer. After four days of testimony, Rodney Pierce was found liable and ordered to pay the Hattori's $650,000. The judge said that there was no justification whatsoever that a killing was necessary for him to save himself and or his family. Preach. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Rodney's homeowner insurance paid the Hattori's $100,000, but that is all they have received. But the Hattori's kept none of the money awarded. Instead, they left it all in the U.S. to fund gun control measures. Some of the things they did, uh, they gave some of the money to gun reform groups. They also launched the Yoshi Foundation which is an exchange student program for American high school students where participants spend a year in Japan so that they can experience life in a place where they don't have to fear gun violence. Wow. Mm-hmm. I love the way their minds think Isn't about that, that too. It is, it, is, it is really interesting. It is. 
So far, 31 students have made that trip. Wow. That's really lovely. Mieko said she was proud to have shown them a different point of view. Yeah. I mean, there will always be clear differences. I mean, I don't think we'll ever live in an America where we don't have the right to carry firearms. Um, And I understand that's dramatically different from what they have in Japan. And it is. It's a different way of life. Very much. It's a different way to think about how we live and how we interact with each other. It's very different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Stephanie, sadly, Yoshi was not the only victim on this tragic night. After the shooting to cope with his trauma, Webb totally immersed himself in music. He was a jazz guitarist, and he also played the saxophone. He ended up graduating from high school in 1994, and that fall he went to a liberal arts college in Minnesota, where he began to process his trauma through writing. After graduation, he studied writing in England, but then decided to move into behavioral health care, and he ended up getting a master's degree in social work from Columbia University. He became a child therapist and moved back to Louisiana in 2018 to set up a practice in New Orleans. He said the trauma of the shooting and his efforts to process it are what drew him to psychotherapy. Aww. And he really wanted to help other kids that had gone through trauma. I thought that was really wow beautiful that he became a child therapist. What a sweetheart. Yes. Unfortunately, his family said that he was always haunted by survivor's guilt. And they said he was deeply, outwardly affected. And sometimes he would be able to put it away. But it always came back. On March 2nd, 2022... Webb committed suicide. Oh gosh. It's it's like I said earlier, it's the it's the ripple effect. It is. It's it this is. ripple effect of people touched by tragedy and touched by bad decision making. Mm-hmm. This wow. is 30 years later. 30 years later. Wow. His amazing mother Holly said that when she heard the news, she screamed and yelled and fell to the ground. Just as Mieko Hattori had done almost exactly 30 years earlier. Wow. Holly wants people to know that Webb did not use a gun to end his life. And she believes that this was a kindness to those of us who survived. Okay, who are these incredibly strong mothers? I know. After decades of empathizing with the Hattori's loss, the haymakers have now literally felt their pain. They consider Webb to be another casualty of the 1992 shooting, saying that bullet didn't hit Webb, but it killed him just the same. The haymakers over the years have donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to gun control groups, including the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. The organization used their money to set up a working group which helped formulate so-called red flag laws, which is a legal measure which allows the court-sanctioned removal of firearms from people judged to be a danger to themselves or others. The Haymakers also gave a $500,000 endowment to Dix University, Carleton College, to create the Yoshihiro Hattori Memorial Fund which aims to help cover costs for Japanese students who study at the Minnesota Institution. As for the Hattori family, just before the 30th anniversary of Yoshi's death, 
the Hattori's announced their retirement from gun reform advocacy. A few days later, they sent a message to be read aloud at a memorial event at the Haymakers Church. It said, thanks to many people in Louisiana, my son's dream of making America his second country has come true. And now I'm crying all over again. <laughs> Me too. We're both, we're both in tears. Wow. There you go. Well, I don't know. This may be an unpopular opinion with some. Um, I do believe, again, like I said, in personal protection. But I do think so having some basic amount of regulations in place um, is is prudent, um, is justified, and is reasonable. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about a gun. This is a dangerous weapon. This is something you can take the life of a child right. by making a bad decision. Right. And uh, to have some kind of training, to have some kind of understanding of how this can change many lives and destroy many lives. Yes. Um, I think it's important to to understand that. Yeah, I agree. It's beyond reasonable. I mean, I, I think it's beyond reasonable. Beyond reasonable. Wow. Yay to the haymakers and the Hattori's right. for both of their sons. Their lives have not been for naught and they have absolutely not been forgotten. Right. Amazing people. Amazing people. Amazing people. And yeah, what an incredible story. Thank you, Cynthia. Oh. Wow. You did a, a service to Yoshi by showing us how his life it will hopefully help protect other people. Yes. I, I believe it will. I believe yeah, uh, it absolutely will. Already has. Already has. Already has. Incredible. And thank you for listening. Join us again next week as we bring you more thrills and chills. Yeah. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a Just Us Gals production with artwork by Justice Holmes and music by Ryan Creep.